Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 31, The Third Task. Dumbledore reckons you know who's getting stronger again as well, Ron whispered. Everything Harry had seen in the pensive, nearly everything Dumbledore had told and shown him afterwards, he had now shared with Ron and Hermione, and of course with Sirius. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Kyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, you may notice my accent is becoming more and more British, because next week we're going to be in London for our live show. Woohoo! You can still get tickets. There's a few left. Go to harrypottersacredtext.com, click on the big orange button, and join us on Sunday, the 10th of June. We're starting at 7 p.m. right near Euston Station, and we'd love to see you. Vanessa, I've told the story before of the accident that I had falling off the pier in St. Andrews, where I broke both my legs and my wrist and fractured my back. And I ended up in a wheelchair for a number of months and, and had this kind of slow recovery. But reading this chapter through the theme of kindness reminded me of that recovery period more than the accident. I was at home and getting frustrated now and then. The big event of the day was a shower. And my mom organized for one of her friends every Wednesday morning to come and sit with me and paint. And I was obsessed with the show Strictly Come Dancing, which is the British version of So You Think You Can Dance. And my mom's friend would sit down with me and bring these box of watercolors and prepare paper for us. And I would sit there in my wheelchair and she would invite us to dance a tango or a waltz. And somehow using the paint, I was supposed to kind of create a dance on paper. And of course, who knows what a dance looks like when you're painting with watercolors. But what it did was give me a space and a time to not have to like verbally talk about how I was feeling, but to give a way for me to kind of process with images on paper. And I was thinking about it recently, and I thought about that act of offering a painting class as this wonderful demonstration of kindness. It wasn't teaching me to paint in a certain way. It wasn't like trying to achieve a certain look or a vision of something. It was just a time and a regular place for us to sit down and for me to try and make meaning of what was going on in my life. It felt so safe and I, I felt so held. I really believe that that was part of my physical healing process was to have that mental, spiritual, emotional healing time. I love that idea that like kindness is just sitting with someone and setting up the paints in a way that they can reach them. These moments of nursing are mm. such wonderful opportunities for kindness. And so, yeah, what a beautiful gesture. And I love that definition in a story of kindness. 
Thanks. Now I'll be kind to you and not do very well on the 30-second recap <laughs> because so much happens in this chapter. There's a lot going on. It's like a million pages and a million things happen. Do you want to count me in? Are you ready to roll? Yep. Timer is ready. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So um, Mrs. Weasley comes to be the family for Harry before the third task. And Harry obviously catches everybody up on everything he learned in the pensive. And then the third task is a maze. And he and Cedric go in first. And it turns out that Crumb might be evil because he tries to hex um, Cedric. And Fleur goes down first. And then Cedric and Harry have this negotiation as to who should grab the goblet and it's like very, you know, magnanimous. And then they run and they touch the goblet. They decide that they're going to touch it at the same time and they touch it and it turns out that it's a porky. I felt like we were in the maze with you. Thank you. Yeah, that last moment really like speeding up. Wow. Yeah. I skipped one or two things. Just small details. Yeah. I'll do my best to fill in the rest. Oh, thank you, my darling. Ready? Yeah. On your mark. Get set. Go. So uh, Hermione thinks she understands how Rita Skeeter got all this um, news because there's um, he, she sees Draco Malfoy like talking into a, a pretend walkie-talkie-esque thing. And then there's big newspaper coverage that um, is like anti-Harry and oh my God. Okay, so then they get into the maze and there's Blast and it's screws. But actually, there's not a lot that happens for Harry. Like his path seems mysteriously clear. And then he meets the Sphinx and the Sphinx has like got not a great riddle, like not great riddle skills. And the answer is a spider. And then, yeah, they get transported. I know we don't like to talk about authorial intent, but there's a pretty big mistake in this chapter. Hermione, when she figures out about the beetle, she keeps running her fingers through her hair. And any curly girl knows you can't run your fingers through your hair. Ah, Vanessa is demonstrating in this moment with her fingers in her hair. Yeah, like through is not an option. In the magical world, Vanessa, anything is possible. I mean, maybe. I just want to know what conditioner she's using. (laughs) Like, maybe Hermione has a hot curly girl tip. Vanessa, where do you want to start by exploring this theme of kindness in this chapter? Because there are a number of cute moments. Yes. But we have to start with the big moment, which is Harry is getting ready in the morning for the third task, which starts that night. And McGonagall says, like, Potter, come with me now, even though it's breakfast time. And Harry is like, uh, I thought the task was until tonight. And McGonagall says, no, but your family is here. And the champions' families are allowed to come and spend some time with you guys. And Harry's like, great, the Dursleys are not here. So starts heading up to the library. And Cedric grabs Harry. And it turns out that Mrs. Weasley and Bill are there. And it's just so sweet. Bill took a day off from the bank. Bill's like, I don't want to go to work today. <laughs> So this is a great excuse. He's met Bill maybe twice. I don't buy it, Bill. Bill just wanted a day off work. Oh, I don't think so at all. I think it's like when you go with your mom to visit someone at the hospital who, like, you don't know, but, like, sure, I'll come. And I think we see another just moment of genius kindness on Bill's part where he asks Harry for a tour of the grounds. Like, he (laughs) only graduated five years ago. He does not need a tour of Hogwarts. But he also knows that, like, a 14-year-old does not know what to do with his, like, friend's mom and brother. And so he, like, gives him a task and is like, hey, why don't you do this thing? I love that. I hadn't even thought about it. I mean, there is some argument to say that, you know, the Hogwarts staircases are always moving. So there's new things. 
things to see? And oh, is that painting still here? Yeah, actually, Bill is so generous with his questions. He's like, is Sir Cadogan still here? Tell me about that, Harry. Yeah. You know, it's when someone is awkwardly standing at your party and you're like, do you want to hand out the appetizers? Right. <laughs> like, and as someone who loves to be given a task because I'm awkward at parties, give me a task. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Okay. You know, it does strike me that this is the moment when Fleur falls for Bill is when he's being kind to Harry in this way. Like she sees something in him that maybe the rest of the world hasn't seen in a while. Oh, I love that. I just thought it was the long hair and the fang earrings. Uh, It's a combination, to be fair. Yeah, but like what's hotter than like a tough looking guy being so sweet? I mean, we did a little bit skip over Molly and this is obviously very kind of her as well. And I feel like Part of what I think is beautiful about Molly in this moment is she's noticing that nobody else is there for Harry, and she's really stepping into the surrogate mother role. I think until this point in the books, she's always done things for Harry in addition to her children. So she'll pick up Harry's books when she's already picking up her kids' books. She'll buy Harry a robe when she's already getting her kids' robes. Mm. But this is the first time that she makes an effort that's just for Harry. Mm. And there's something so kind and beautiful about that. Yeah, absolutely. To make the trip all the way. And what I love about it is it's not smothering. Like, first of all, she brings Bill, so it's not just her herself. And then when they go on the walk, eventually the rest of the Weasleys join them. So Fred and George and Ginny with Ron and Hermione as well. And Harry says at some point, it almost felt like being in the burrow. Like, so it's about recreating a sense of home and family and connection. Before... Even though Harry feels confident about this third task, still a frightening experience. But Casper, Molly and all of her brilliant kindness, I'm wondering what you make of the moment where she's like mean to Hermione. She's really pretty cold and distant. And she's not doing anything actively, you know, mean. She's not dissing her in some way. But clearly, even from the size of the Christmas present onward, there's been a change between Molly and Hermione. And sometimes just being cold to someone can be awful. Yeah. And I think that's what we can tell in this moment is that even if you're still giving a gift or even if you're still saying, hey, how are you doing? There can be a tone in which it happens, even when it's unconscious that other people can pick up on. Like, I think about this a lot because I'm traveling for work a lot at the moment that I signal busyness or I signal unavailability to friends who I actually really want to spend time with without meaning to. There's ways of signaling warmth or coldness, exactly like you were saying. And Molly has certainly turned the freezer on, whether she knows it or not. And it massively changes as soon as Harry says, you know Rita Skeeter's just writing lies, right? And she's like, of course I knew. Now let me give you an actual hug, you know. I was thinking as we were reading this and meditating on the theme of kindness that kindness is really about priorities, Mm. right? It's about saying in this moment, before it gets articulated to Molly that it's totally false, she's prioritizing Harry. And she's saying Mm. at the end of the day, Hermione has a family and I'm going to protect Harry. Mm. And so I think that sometimes kindness requires meanness or coldness somewhere else because it's about prioritizing the things that you care about. I'm going to break up with you and I'm going to do it in a very direct way so you know it's over because in the long run, it is kinder that you don't think that there's like lingering hope. Yeah. I mean, in some way, Molly is signaling like, I will protect you no matter what. And I mean, she does like her fierce protection of Harry is something that we'll see throughout the books and that she's willing to put herself in significant danger in order to protect 
Harry and, and his mission. You know, that's interesting, Vanessa. She sees Harry as part of a much bigger fight against evil in a way that I think is closest to Dumbledore. It's not just a maternal transference onto Ron's best friend. She understands that he is part of a much bigger battle of good versus evil. And and she sees herself as a very active participant in that. Yeah, and so if what she has to do as part of her strategy is be cold to the girl who broke Harry's heart, that's what she has to do. And and then once Harry is like, she didn't break my heart, everything's fine. It's like, oh, good, I get to love Hermione again. But there's nothing better than a friend who hates someone just on your behalf. <laughs> right? It's like, they weren't nice to you, I hate them. We're done. Never yeah. going to talk to them again. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's incredibly kind. Yeah, there's something very protective in that kindness. Yeah. Nurturing. The other person that we should mention, thinking about Harry's family, is Sirius. And they're in daily contact now. And he sends this, like, poor print piece of paper on the day of the maze, which is so adorable. And I wish my dog would send me paw prints. She and I are separated, and I have a live show. And it would be so nice if an owl just dropped off a paw print from Rory, being like, I'm thinking about you. Good luck tonight. You see, I thought, because it's just a paw print, I was like, how do we know that this isn't a hostage situation? Like, <laughs> I have your dog. It's alive. <laughs> I wasn't clear what it was supposed to mean. Harry knows. But to think about Sirius, you know, he's obviously trying to protect Harry. He's saying, focus on the task. Don't think about what's happening in the outside world. You know, it's beyond your responsibility and it's beyond your power. And those are chilling words, knowing what we know about what is to come. I wanted to think about kindness and information or kindness and responsibility because Sirius is trying to protect Harry, but he's unable to. And so his words with hindsight, fall a little flat because you know what? It is in Harry's power and responsibility. Like he is engaged in this fight with Voldemort. And so to pretend that that's not important is just unrealistic because it's going to invade into his world anyway. I think that that's exactly right. It's one of the most frustrating things for me when I'm really anxious about something and somebody says, it'll be fine. Mm. I'm like, you don't know that. (laughs) And those disingenuous comforts can be incredibly distancing and frustrating. And I agree with you that that is a flat part of what Sirius says. But it reminded me of the Audre Lorde quote, which is one of my favorite quotes, which is, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. Mm. So I feel like part of what Sirius is saying is if you're not alive, you can't help, right? You have to take care of yourself first. And I agree that then it goes too far with, like, the bigger things aren't about you. They are about Harry. But Sometimes the kindest thing to do for the world is to take care of yourself, is to say, I can't go out with you tonight. I need to go to bed early so that you can be a better friend the next day. And it's sweet. We see a moment like that where Hermione says to Harry, listen, we're not going to do any more impediment jinxes. Like, go to bed. And Hermione is even willing to not study for exams. I know. Talk about kindness. She's like... Well, we'll do well on Defense Against the Dark Arts because we're learning all these cool hexes, and it's more important for you to get through the third task. It's interesting because she doesn't know that death is at stake, Mm. and so I actually think it's weird that she's willing to give up doing well on exams for Harry to what? Come in first place? I was going to say, do you think Hermione is maybe a little more competitive than we think? Because at this point, Harry's in first equal place with Cedric, and he's demonstrated that he can actually really go for the win. Do you think now that the win is in grasp, Hermione's like, okay, now we're all in? 
Yeah, I mean, he's not going to die from her point of view right now. She wasn't even worried he was going to die in the second one. You can send up Red Sparks. I don't know. If I were Hermione, I'd be like, get into the maze and send up Red Sparks. Like, you don't need to do this. You didn't ask for it. I would just be offering a forfeit strategy to Harry if I were Hermione. And then back to your books. Yeah. You're like, I've got to learn about the Goblin Revolution of 43. I have a hair conditioning regimen to stay on. <laughs> My hair isn't going to deep condition itself. Harry, just go in and send up Red Sparks. <laughs> Everyone would be a lot safer if we had followed that strategy. So, Vanessa, let's go into the maze. We're entering the third task. Harry and Cedric start off. Then comes Crumb, then comes Fleur. Where did you notice kindness in the passages around the maze? An interesting moment to me is when Harry helps Cedric after Crumb has attacked Cedric. Mm. And it appears as though Crumb has done the Cruciatus curse on Cedric, which is a criminal offense. And we hear Cedric screaming and it sounds terrible. And even after all of that, Harry says, I thought he was all right about Crumb. Mm. I think it's a moment of kindness and wanting to believe the best in Crumb, even after his eyes have shown him something awful about Crumb. And I think we see those moments a lot right now as bad news is coming out about famous people who we love. And you want to believe the best in them. I'm wondering if that's kindness or is that something else? Is that about wanting to believe that the world is good and just processing? Is it about grief? That's such an interesting question. The way I read that line, if I thought he was all right, was kind of embarrassment because Crumb comes from Dumstrang. There's all these prejudices and rumors around Dumstrang and that they do the dark arts. And Harry's really made an effort to kind of keep a line of connection open with Victor Crumb and has these experiences where it feels like there's a little bit of a friendship or at least respect for one another. And then here's something where he sees Crumb do something so horrific that completely negates all of that experience. And so, yeah, the way I read it was more like, oh, how foolish was I? I should have believed the stereotypes in some way. But also a sadness about the fact that that might be true. He doesn't want it to be true. And yeah, there's a loss there. Because if you can't trust this person who is stereotyped negatively, well, is the same thing going to be true about Hagrid? Is the same thing going to be true about Professor Lupin? Because he's had these experiences before, seeing Lupin transform into this terrifying werewolf, right? There's a kind of night and day experience. Yeah, I like that idea that once you've been kind to someone, it feels like you've been vulnerable to them. And so that betrayal is deeper. It's like, but I've thought kindly of you. And that feels like an act of vulnerability. And so if it turns out that they didn't deserve that kindness, it can feel like a real betrayal. Yeah, especially about your ability to make good judgments. Yeah. And he was like, you are technically my enemy in this context. And I thought we had reached a level of respect. And it turns out I was wrong. Which makes the next few pages with Cedric even more remarkable. Because what could happen is Harry goes like, okay, I can't trust anyone. This kind of rivalry, kind of friendship that I have with Cedric is also therefore not to be trusted. He might turn around and crucio me. No way am I going to work together with this guy. And yet, what both Cedric and Harry do is still choose kindness in a moment of real pressure. 
I mean, one of my favorite things that happens in the world is when people negotiate on the other person's behalf. Yeah. No, you should have the last piece of cake. Yeah. No, no, you. I remember one of the moments is my parents were arguing over who would get up early the following morning to go do an airport pickup. (laughs) Selfish six-year-old me was like, I'd be like, you do it. And my parents were like, no, I'll get up and do it. You have to work later in the day. No, no, I'll get up and do it. You have been working till later. Like, and then they agreed that they would both do it. Oh, my God. They went, well, it'll be better with company, and we can use the carpool lane on the way there. And I was like, you idiots. Now neither of you are going to sleep. It completely blew my mind. And we see that with Cedric and Harry here, where it's like, no, you should take it. No, you should take it. I mean, your parents is such a beautiful example because I hope that they both enjoyed it more because the one who would have stayed at home sleeping would have felt guilty for the rest of the day. And here they had a chance to, like, chat and catch up without the kids present. Oh, absolutely. No, I think that they did just realize, oh, it'll be fun to go together. I wish I could say the same for Cedric and Harry. (laughs) But imagine the potential in that moment, right? Once they come to this agreement, they would have been celebrated together. Gryffindor and Hufflepuff could have been proud. United Hogwarts in this beautiful way. Yeah. At least everyone except Slytherin. Yeah. Imagine the potential of like this kindness sort of emanating warmth and beauty throughout Hogwarts. And the friendship that they would have had. I mean, they have this incredible rivalry on the pitch as two sportsmen, but just think about the mentorship that Harry would have received from Cedric and the way that Harry would have affirmed Cedric's inherent gifts and the way that he stands up to his dad. And Cedric would have made an amazing Minister of Magic in 2030 years' time. It's one of my favorite things in sports, which I know I tend to say not nice things about. But like Isaiah Thomas and Magic Johnson, who are on rival teams, they had like a great love and affection for one another and were very good friends. And yet were like terrific rivals on the court. But they would hug each other right before the game and then congratulate each other after each game. And there's just something so beautiful about that being like, okay, we're going to play hard on each other. But not as a sign of a lack of love, but out of a sign of respect and joy for the game. And friendship always exists in it. And I think that, yeah, there could have been such beauty here. Because kindness is more than just a gift to someone else. It's an affirmation of who you are also. And I think that's what I love about this moment is that both of them are lifted up. Like both of them are their best selves in this moment of mutual kindness. One of the most striking things to me is as far as dealing with depression, they say that a way to get out of depression is to volunteer. Mm. And it's the idea that like being kind to other people is actually one of the best things that you can do for yourself. It makes you feel good about yourself. And so your life has purpose. And so Harry and Cedric could have written the story about themselves as fair people who prioritize kindness and justice above competitiveness. Yeah, absolutely. So, Casper, we are going to transition this week to Chavruta. Oh, I love Chavruta. It's my favorite. I mean, mine too. (laughs) And Chavruta is the Jewish tradition started in yeshivas of two people sitting together with a text and asking each other questions and then answering one another with another question. Mm. 
And so the question that I have for you today is, is Hagrid basically an arms dealer? Because (laughs) he breeds a blast-ended scroot, which is then used as a weapon in the maze. We love Hagrid, but this is troublesome. And so how do we feel about the fact that Hagrid breeds these monsters who then are put in the maze to hurt children? Well, Vanessa, let me also remind you that as part of Chavruta, you have to offer an answer before I do. What is your answer to that question? I was out of practice and forgot that. (laughs) Yes. My answer to the question is that I still think it matters that Hagrid takes care of dangerous creatures. But there's a line, right, of we want to see the humanity and beauty in dangerous things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we want them to have access to be dangerous in the world. Mm, Okay, well, I feel there's a couple of layers here. One is that I don't think it's Hagrid's decision or was it his intention to weaponize these animals. My reading of the gameskeeper role is that he was experimenting to see what would happen with these blast-ended scroots. And when they became dangerous, someone, probably Ludo Bagman, when he saw it, was like, ooh, let's put this in the maze. That'll be fun. So it was like Einstein writing a letter saying, I don't think we should use the nuclear bomb. Ooh, yeah, exactly. It's like you can be on the edge of science and say, we should never use this. It's kind of discovering something new, but therefore really understanding what its implications would be. But the other thing is that throughout this third challenge, I feel like we have really not learned the lessons of the second challenge. Harry was too much of a gentleman and not enough of a competitor to make the most of his advantage. I feel like the sparks being thrown up into the sky above the maze are just the first level of precaution. I think that no one was actually going to get physically injured. And so if you were going to meet a blast-ended scroot, I'm pretty confident that you wouldn't die. I agree with you that our dear Poppy would have been able to heal you, but that doesn't mean... Sorry, Madam Pomfrey, for those of you who aren't BFFs with her. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt in the short term. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Hagrid is contributing to making a more dangerous environment, but he's not the one mobilizing that danger. He's adding chili to the table, but he's not adding it to your actual dish. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yes, except that that's such a benign metaphor. Variety is the spice of life. (laughs) I think that we often don't see ourselves in complicit in things that we are complicit in. What would happen if Hagrid was like, no, you cannot use blast-ended scroots for this. We don't know enough about them and... It was a mistake for me to breed them. Yes, and I think maybe that's the part of Hagrid's recklessness that does come through. And we know he is not always the smartest in his judgment. He's probably called her Nellie by this point, (laughs) right? Nellie the blast-ended screwed. So, Casper, it is now your turn to ask me a counter question. I'm going to stay with this theme, Vanessa, because I want to think about how to set up stakes for challenges and learning. I just came across this new product, which is really interesting to me. It looks like a watch, but it shocks you. It's the electric shock every time you do something that you don't want to be doing. So let's say you're smoking or you're biting your nails or you're eating something that you don't want to be doing, which reminded me so much of the kind of self-discipline, self-flagellation of we see Harry and all the champions go into the maze, not sending up sparks and just going to face these terrifying challenges. He answers the Sphinx's question without being sure that it's the right answer. Yeah, I'm just curious, is that defensible 
behavior change strategies or learning strategies? I mean, I hate it so much. I hate the idea of self-harm or martyrdom in any way. And I think that the extreme of that is people who, like, starve themselves to lose weight and do really unhealthy things. But I can imagine out of a sense of desperation of, like, I am addicted to this thing that's bigger than me. I will do whatever I have to do in order to break this habit. And as we've talked about, sometimes kindness requires a little bit of cruelty. I hate jogging, but it's kind to my body to, like, be in shape. And so even though I don't like it, it's heart healthy and I want to be a healthy person, not just for myself, but so other people don't have to take care of me. But yeah, I wish that they had all sent up red sparks. I hate this. This is far too dangerous. And if someone I loved was shocking themselves to quit smoking, I I don't know. I want my friends to not smoke and not get lung cancer, but I don't want them to shock themselves. Casper, it's time for us to listen to a voicemail, and this week's voicemail is from Connie Carringer. Hello, Casper and Vanessa. This is Connie Carringer from Apex, North Carolina. I recently listened to the episode on delight, and it resonated so much with me. I am a mother of two fierce little gals, a three-year-old and a nine-month-old. Delight is a word I have often used when talking about parenting them. They are amazing, funny, sweet, curious little people. And then two months ago, my three-year-old was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Type 1 is an autoimmune disease where the body's immune system attacks and kills the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas. It just happens sometimes, and medical science still doesn't have an answer as to why, and they still don't have a cure. And until there is a cure, she will be dependent on insulin every day to stay healthy. This has been the hardest thing I've gone through in my life. I have so much grief and anger and sadness for the loss of her carefree childhood, the unfairness of it, the constant worry that she will be sick, the stress of multiple daily injections. I don't know if you've ever had to hold a three-year-old down and give them an injection. As you can imagine, it's not delightful at all. And then there's the real fear that she could die. It's like a, a fear that shall not be named. I have had many moments where I related to Lily Potter so much, seeing diabetes as Voldemort coming to my home to destroy everything, feeling helpless and desperate to protect my child. If I could sacrifice myself like Lily, somehow take my daughter's diabetes for myself, I would do it without hesitation. But I'm a muggle, and unlike Lily Potter, my love doesn't have that kind of magic. I had a realization this week after listening to your podcast. My love is magical in a different way. My love may not be able to take her diabetes away, but it can always put her as a child and a person first. It can help make her days ones that are characterized most by delight and curiosity and wonder. My love can allow me to be present with the difficult moments with compassion for both her and for myself. Since I realized this, there have been fewer tears and more laughter and sweetness and delight. It is magical. So thank you for holding the space for me to process this and for everything you do. Blessings to you both and all the Sacred Text community. 
Connie, thank you so much for that voicemail. And I just completely agree with you that your love for her is magical. And as painful as it must be, you crying with her is a form of of magic to love something so much that her pain is your pain. And, And that love is a form of protection. And Connie, obviously, we don't know enough about your context, but I did think of a cousin of mine who growing up had very, very similar challenges and and needed to be in the hospital multiple times a week and had injections at home multiple times a day and now lives a life of a, you know, mid-twenties musical theater studying fabulous young woman who is managing her own care and her own health needs and who is thriving. And so may that be true for your daughter also and for everyone who's living with real health challenges like this. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. Who are you going to bless this week? I would like to bless Fleur Delacour. She's the only woman in the Triwizard Tournament, and she comes in last place. And I know the circumstances of this last task obviously get unwieldy, but Fleur and all the tasks seems to come last. And I would imagine that you feel a tremendous amount of pressure being the only woman and not being seen as like a rigorous competitor. And so I want to offer a blessing to anybody who feels like they are representing something bigger than themselves in any context. It is a lot of pressure to walk through the world with. And I am someone who has a minimal form of that in my life, but I know that it exists in a lot of people's lives in very extreme forms. And I just want to offer a blessing for that added burden. Existing in the world is hard enough without feeling like you have to represent everybody who is like you in one or the other way every time you do anything in public. So a blessing to Fleur. What about you, Casper? My blessing is for Cedric. We've talked about the moment where he turns back from the cup. He's closest by. Harry is severely injured. And I I just want to stay with that moment a little longer and to think about You know, the idea of the bodhisattva in Buddhism, that none of us are free until we are all free, that a bodhisattva is someone who reaches enlightenment and then returns straight back to serve others and to bring enlightenment to the rest of the world. I just feel like Cedric, in a very small way, embodies that moment here and that we can all, even when there's something beautiful and tempting and powerful and something very exciting that's just within our grasp, if it's not going to be for everyone, then why should it be for us? It's a blessing and a challenge for for each of us to think about. So a blessing for Cedric. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes, or send us a two-minute voicemail at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 32, Flesh, Blood, and Bone, through the theme of waste. We hope to see you at our London live show on June 10th, This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkyle, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a proud part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to Connie Carringer for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Julia Argy, and, of course, Stephanie Paulson. Thanks, everyone. Bye. See you next week for Death and Destruction.
That reminds me of a piece I read at the in like it was on Twitter, but it was a picture of a newspaper item in England of a, a like a, a theater production, and um, it was you know mostly older people in the audience. And uh, at the end of the show, you know, they're bowing and it's a couple that's just just staying seated. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the tech crew moves in like everyone has left and there's still two people there. No. And, and the manager they of the died. house, the woman was like, I think my husband died towards the end of the first act. But I didn't want to cause it. No, no, she said, we didn't want to cause a fuss. <laughs> and he had died. <laughs> I just love it. We didn't want to cause a fuss. I was like, is there anything more English? Oh, my God. So there was an intermission. Yes. Where they could have done yes. something. She was right. It probably would have It would have. Yeah, exactly. Of course it would have. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just, it's just, and I love that she says we. It's just like <laughs> we made that decision together. 